0: Okay, let's turn to Romans 1 and Romans, get this, 15, not 16. We're moving in, pressing in. Gary, did you need to talk to Judy? Go ahead. (laughs) He was coming down toward you, Judy, your cousin. Yeah. Now. Now. Some important announcements. I was just raked over the coals by Larry because his wife Judy's birthday was yesterday. Faithful Judy. See, we had four things yesterday. I knew there was another thing. See, Judy. Larry, man, he's a tough customer. A couple other things. I've been enjoying for many years now Tony Sadar's articles in various periodicals and publications, and he has permitted us to print out his latest offering on the Washington Times article, and I think it's one of his best. He, he keeps getting better and better at this, and it's entitled, In Climate We Trust, and you might detect a little bit of tongue-in-cheek there And it's a very excellent article, and I like the last paragraph the best. It was awesome. So feel free to pick up a copy. It really gives a, a tremendous scientific and scriptural balance to some of the hysteria regarding climate and other things today. So that's right out on the tape table. We aren't charging for it, but Tony wants a $5 offering per each cell another thing i stupidly neglected to mention is that the all of the messages that were proclaimed and taught in my absence are present are on the table the tape table for your edification and i know some of you already know that but the two the double speed are too as well as the regular speed so Let's take, now there's no birthdays. I'm, I, see, I got hooked into this thing now, and I'm stuck forever. And so, do we have any birthdays? Come on, let's get it over with. Now, you wouldn't tell me, anyways. Romans chapter 1, verse 8. And let's take a couple of moments silent preparation. Father, what a privilege it is to be here tonight with the saints, with those who are like-minded in Christ. We've come here all for the same purpose and by the same motivation, which is our love for your word. And we join with the psalmist who said, oh, how I love your word. We pray that you'll open the eyes of our heart to see wonderful things in your word tonight. And that you'll open our ears to hear the shepherd who shepherds us always. And that you'll open our hearts to truly receive the word that edifies and that builds up. So that we can in turn edify one another and build up the messianic community by love. We thank you for this privilege in Christ's name. Amen. We're moving along, really, we kind of greased the rails a little bit in the past few messages to get through some things, and now we're ready to continue the pincer movement and press toward the center and the heart and the center of Romans by moving from the left and the right flank. We'll start with the left flank in Romans one eight. This is, again, all of this will be my translation, which I may be tweaking a little bit before we get to the end. By the time we get to the end of Romans, like we did with Revelation, we'll have a translation of Romans from the original Greek text. Romans 1.8, first, Paul says, I give thanks to my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. There's that use of all again. He's embracing All of them, including the five groups, some of which are pitted against each other in Rome. I give thanks to my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because the news about your faith is proclaimed in all the world. This is kind of a subtle dig at Rome, who is always bragging about their world fame, and... In fact, Rome is the most famous braggarts in the whole world. And so Paul says, here's something that's world famous. Your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Certainly God is my witness, he says, whom I serve with my spirit in the preaching of the gospel about his son, that I constantly mention you in my prayers, always asking in addition that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. I want you to notice that phrase. That's part of Paul's intention. A lot of the study that I'm doing in Romans and in Better Call Paul is kind of an intentionality analysis of Paul. What are his intentions? What are his purposes? And to detect these. And that Practical purpose is right here. I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For you see, I long to see you so that I may impart a spiritual gift to you so that you will be strengthened. Now, that word strengthened is sterizo. And in a way, it summarizes the practical purpose of Paul in Romans the epistle. And this word not only is used effectively in 111, but you can go to the other extreme flank and you'll find it in 1625 as Paul closes. Now, to the one who has power to strengthen you. Same word, sterizo, in both of these places. Sterizzo encompasses the practical purpose of the whole epistle, which is to establish the saints, establish them in the truth of God, to empower them, on the other hand, to take a firm stand in the apocalyptic struggle, which is ongoing now in this great change of the ages, and also to be strengthened in unity, to be strengthened, to be united as one it means to stabilize and to impart steadfastness of mind so that the mind is settled on Christ. Isaiah 26.3, one of my favorite practical verses, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is settled on you. Now, as in Acts 14.22 We have this word, only it's previewed by a little preposition, episterizo. These often intensify the word, episterizo intensifies the idea of strengthening. Acts 14.22, it means to strengthen or to confirm or establish the souls of disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith. To continue in their participation with Messiah's fidelity, and also by reminding them, as Romans does, that it is necessary to pass through many troubles on their way to the kingdom of God, so you put acts fourteen twenty two together with romans five two to four Paul talks about boasting in our tribulations, boasting in our trials because as the young people say today, the struggle struggle is real, but Paul goes a little further than that and says the struggle is productive. It produces endurance, it produces patience, and patience hope, and hope is not ashamed because of the love of God being poured out in our hearts. The struggle may be real, but that's not all. The struggle is productive. Romans five, one to five. That's encouragement. Paul also says in Romans 8.18 that the troubles and difficulties and hard times of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will, in fact, follow inevitably. So, sterizo your siblings, strengthen your brothers, strengthen your brothers, is what Jesus said to Peter because he said, you're going to be converted, Peter. Right now, your confidence is in your own strength, and you are going to crash and burn mightily by by relying on your self strength. But when you're converted, strengthen your brothers and sisters, sterizo your siblings. That's Luke twenty two thirty two, and he fulfilled it in Second Peter one twelve to fifteen. Peter fulfilled that mandate. The result of sterizo is stereoma. That's S T E R E O M A. Stereoma. And that's a word that's found in Colossians 2 5, which means a solid, united front against the sower of strife. Proverbs 6 19. There are seven things that Yahweh abominates or hates, and last on the list is the sower of discord or the one who plants seeds of strife, and this is exactly Satan's operation in Rome, and this is the operation of certain false teachers and biased brethren in Rome. So, sterizo has a result, a corporate result, and it's stereoma, And it's a military term for a solid united front, in this case against the sower of strife in Proverbs 6.19. Sterizo means to have imparted in the Holy Spirit, that's very important, an inner strength of firm conviction and unqualified assurance. These are all my definitions. I've looked at all. I've looked at Freiburg. I've looked at Lunita and Thayer and Liddell Scott and the United Bible Society and all of the definitions, and this is what I've kind of come up with on my own, from a contextual definition in Ushids in the New Testament. Sterizo, then, is an inner strength of firm conviction produced by the Holy Spirit, an unqualified assurance of faith and it means that Paul intends to come to establish them in a real participation in Messiah's own fidelity. To establish them in it. To establish us in it. It is to strengthen their allegiance to the Lord, and not to their own group biases. Strengthen their allegiance to the Lord. The objective of this strengthening is so that they will be preserving the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. A very pivotal verse from Ephesians 4, three. Preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Again, a very key term. Sterizo, then, is a very important word, and it's used both at the left and the right flank of Romans. And it's part of Paul's objective, part of his purpose, part part of his intention. The objective of this strengthening is so that they will preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So sterizo, in the particular context of Romans, the epistle means to bring to a state of inner security. To bring to a state of inner security through God's strength and not our own. And for that passage, we have what is the center of the center of Romans, Romans 8, 31 to 39. I'm not going to deal with that tonight, but it merely point to it as one of the central, as perhaps the heart of the heart of Romans. And so again, sterizo means to bring to a state of inner security in the context of Romans and thus to eradicate the insecurity that is the basis for group biases all group biases are rooted in a deep psychological inner insecurity and that's really a basis for ressentiment which is a devastating cancer to the church sterizo then in the context of Romans, is to bring to a state of inner security and thus to eradicate the insecurity that makes for group biases, fragmentation, polarization, and mutual ressentiment. Obviously, this has a political-social aspect to it as well. Sterizo also indicates the kind of stability that is not drawn away by the magnetism of false teachers. In 2 Peter 3.17, compared with Romans sixteen seventeen and 18, or that is agitated by those who spread strife. That can happen through gossip. It can happen through slander. It can happen through heresy. It can happen through comparing one another with one another, measuring each other by each other by various kinds of spiritual bullying and judgment and despising of one another. Such a united front, then, the stereoma produced by the stereizo process, such a united front will in turn be effective in the expansion of the proclamation of the gospel, in this case, to Spain. So again, very significantly, Sterizo, here in Romans 1.8, finds a mate in Romans 16.25. Now to him who has the power to Sterizo you by my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery, etc. However, Paul does not want to say only that his coming to them will result in them being strengthened. As you'll see in the next verse, verse 12 of Romans 1. He wants to both have both they and he be mutually encouraged. Romans 1, 12. So he says, that is, let's start with verse 11 and then see how it segues into 12. For you see, I long to see you so that I may impart a spiritual gift to you so that you will be strengthened. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged encouraged. This time he has a Greek word, sum, which means together. We've been doing a lot of these S-U-N and S-U-M words, speaking of togetherness and unity. Mutually encouraged is sum, S-U-M, plus para kaleo. Mutually encouraged, mutually edified, mutually comforted, mutually built up. So that he says, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged through each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul doesn't have a unilateral purpose. He doesn't plan to come to Rome and be the big man that gives them strength. He wants to be mutually encouraged by their faith and by his own faith. And that's exactly what fellowship is all about. So Romans one thirteen, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, siblings, that I have often planned to come to you in order that I might have some fruit among you. Fruit, very important word here for our pincer movement. Carpon. That I may have some fruit among you, just as I have among the other Gentiles or other Gentile Christians, or we could even say among the other nations. But I was hindered until now. So I want you to understand Historically speaking, Paul often planned to come to you. Notice that phrase in verse 13, but I was hindered until now. I put that at the end. It's not at the end in the Greek, but it sounds more palatable to English if you put it at the end. So once again, I do not want you to be unaware, siblings, that I have often planned to come to you in order that I might have some fruit among you just as I have among the other Gentiles or nations, but I was hindered until now. Now, there's maybe a hint here that Rome is just another of the nations, and that's what Paul does in Romans. He doesn't pay much attention to the massive rule of the Roman Empire. His gospel doesn't subvert it as much as it merely eclipses it. And he's in the spirit here of Isaiah 40 and verse 15. All the nations are just a drop in the bucket to God. Including Rome. Including SPQR. Including mighty Roma. But to have fruit, Carpon, K-A-R-P-O-N, among them is really to have a fruitful ministry among them. As he has in other places. But it also means, and we have to be very clear here, it also means, and if this is really clear only in the pincer strategy, there's a, this a really interpretive tool I'm finding more and more beneficial here, that Paul is hoping not only to establish them in allegiance to the gospel of God's Son, but also that, so that he and his team may receive some practical, tactical, logistical support from them. And that's what he means by fruit, carpal. I'll show you that, and I'll show you that that's the proper interpretation here. So, once again, to have fruit means that Paul is hoping not only to establish them with spiritual benefits in allegiance to the gospel of God's Son, but also so that he and his team, his missionary team, may receive some tactical and logistical support That includes financial support from them in Rome for the missionary excursion to Spain. And at this time in Paul's history, he regards Spain as the uttermost parts of the earth, which the gospel is to come to. He almost sees it as the final goal of his missionary enterprise. Remember, I've said that there's a strong missiology in Romans, a strong missional emphasis, and we'll see that more and more. And you'll see it right here. So Paul regards Spain as the final goal of his missionary calling and the way to pay his debt to the barbarians. And you'll see that in 114. He said, I owe a debt. I'm indebted to all people, to the Jews, the Gentiles, and the barbarians. And he's speaking of the fact that these are people that have never heard the gospel. They've never heard the name of Christ. They've never heard about the Bible They are barbarians. And he's not saying that in a way that detracts or in a way that insults. But he's just simply using the language of the time. They're barbarians. Romans one fourteen and following. We're not going to hit that tonight. So let's go to the right flank. This is a pincer strategy. You're not used to it, maybe. I'm not either. And I don't know if this is going to... I think it will work all the way to the end. The right flank in Romans 15, 20. I want you to see relationships, correlations from the left to the right flank. He says, my ambition. And he speaks of his ambition. He's speaking more practically of his policy. As a missionary, as an apostle, he has a specific policy. And that is also found in 2 Corinthians 10, 15 and following. My ambition, and I put in policy is to preach the gospel where Christ is not named, so as not to build on another person's foundations. He's explaining something here. I wanted to come to you many times, but you're already a church, one that I didn't establish. My policy, therefore, is to always preach the gospel where Christ has never been named first, And then to go to churches that are already established by others, not to build on another man's foundation, but to just be a helper of their faith. So he says, there's a reason I didn't come to you. There's a reason that I intended to, but didn't come. I was hindered by my own missionary policy. My ambition and policy is to preach the gospel where Christ is not named so as not to build on another person's foundation. Instead, he says, in accordance with what is written, he establishes, please notice, he establishes his policy based on what is written. Paul sees his whole calling delineated and outlined in Deutero Isaiah. That's Isaiah 40 through 55, and especially in such places as 49 6 and 49 8. So he says this, instead, in accordance with what is written, and he quotes Isaiah 52.15 here, those who had no report of him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. And then Paul says this, he explains now why he couldn't get there. All the way in the beginning, he said, I intended to come, but couldn't. Now he explains why, because in verse 22, this is why. I have been prevented so many times from coming to you. My first goal is to go where the gospel was never preached before. And there's always those opportunities, as he says in 1 Corinthians sixteen nine. An open door is open to me to preach the gospel, but there are many adversaries. And so he has these opportunities which he cannot drop to go someplace where the gospel has been preached. He does intend to go to Spain where the gospel was never preached before by anyone else. He intends to go to Spain through Rome, but he's even got something he wants to do before that and has to do before that, and that's to go to Jerusalem. Some commentators say that Paul seems confused. I don't think he's confused here at all. I think he's got all his ducks in a row, and he does so very well. Paul gets accused by a lot of idiots that don't have anywhere near the wisdom that he had don't understand him at all and it's always true in second 2 peter 2:12 2, that people speak evil of things they don't understand so only here does paul explain why he's been hindered or prevented from coming to rome very simply though he prayerfully intended to many times. It was not because Satan hindered him. When he went to Thessalonians, he wrote to the Thessalonians, he said, I wanted to come to you many times, but Satan hindered me. So there's another opportunity of hindrance. Satan can actually hinder the missionary enterprise, hinder the Christian's progress, even though God will use that hindrance for his own purposes, of course. So in this case, it wasn't because Satan hindered him, as in the case when he tried to get to Thessalonica many times, in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. In this case, it was the demands of his missionary calling to preach the gospel where people had not heard it before, and not where churches were already established by others. And that was the case with the groups of saints in Rome, although it could be said that it's not much of a Unified church or messianic community there in Rome One of the reasons Paul wanted to get there was not to build on another man's foundation, but to strengthen the saints In a kind of follow-up mission in order that they would be unified So attention has to be paid here to the citation from Isaiah fifty-two 15. First because Paul stands in continuity with the prophets as we've said before in Romans 1 2 and Romans sixteen twenty six, both flanks. Second, we have to pay attention to the citation from Isaiah because he sees his own missionary calling delineated in Deutero-Isaiah. And I gave examples before of Isaiah 49, 6, which in Acts 13, 47, he said to the Jews that had rejected his message, he said, well, since you have considered yourselves unworthy of eternal life, I will turn to the Gentiles because it is written in Isaiah 49 6, I will make you a light to the Gentiles and salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul saw that as the delineation of his own calling. And he also said in Isaiah 49 8, the day of salvation that Isaiah predicted, Paul said, Now is that day of salvation. In 2 Corinthians 6 2. So Paul saw his calling, his missionary calling to preach the gospel in the prophets. He saw it in, specifically, Deutero-Isaiah. So Romans 15, 23. But now, he says, I no longer have a place in any of these regions. Now, that can either be very sad or a very happy report. If he's not needed somewhere or has no place there... Perhaps it's because he's already set up missionary pastors in those places, or perhaps he's been run out of all those places. I have no place in any of these regions. Now, if we study Acts, we know that he got run out of a lot of places and was barred from a lot of places. So it might mean that. It's kind of a sad note. I have no place. In... So how are you going to be sure that you have to go somewhere else and preach the gospel? because there ain't no more place for you anywhere else. So he's on his way to Spain. But first, he's going to take a death-defying leap by going to Jerusalem. And that's for a special reason. And I believe he was directed by the Lord to do so. But notice what he says. now I no longer have a place in any of these regions. And since I have longed for many years to come to you, Verse 24, here it is. As I travel to Spain, I hope to see you in passing through and to be sent on my way there by you. In other words, he's being diplomatic, but he's basically saying, I hope you can support me and my missionary team on the last leg of my missionary journey. He's being very open about it, but diplomatic. Once I have first enjoyed your company. I love the way Paul speaks because, of course, they'd all want the apostle to come there. But he says, I want to stop there so I can enjoy your company. And he did have that. Paul had that desperate need for fellowship. We all do. And that's a normal thing, to have the need of rest and comfort and fellowship with other fellow believers. So... That's the Lord bearing witness to that uh, particular thing. And so, first, although I'm not saying he's known by nature only, he's known in Jesus Christ, as we learn from Romans. But first he intends to go to Jerusalem. Now, why does he intend to go to Jerusalem? In Romans 1.16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek which means the Greco-Roman in that day, the non-Jew, we'd call it, the Gentile, those who are not Jews. And so, in Jerusalem, there is a church of Jewish believers. They are being persecuted because Jerusalem, as we've known from Revelation, is the mystery Babylon. It's the whore of whores and Jerusalem, because of her apostasy, is in league with Rome. So we have all kinds of things here correlating from Revelation, too. But he wants to go to Jerusalem because what he's done is he's made a collection of what today might be millions of dollars from churches in southern Greece called Achaia and northern Greece called Macedonia. And they have all been generous, especially the Macedonians, Philippians, and the Thessalonians and others to bring an offering to the persecuted saints in Jerusalem. This would show practically a unity and a solidarity between the Gentile or the Greeks who have believed the gospel and the Jews who have believed the gospel. Paul's worried, though, that if he's the one that brings the collection, will they even accept it? Will the Jewish Christians even accept it? because there were Jewish Christian missionaries that opposed him in Thessalonica. There was a group of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that thought Paul was an upstart and a revolutionary and someone who was against the gospel. And so he's going to ask for prayer soon, as we'll see. Please pray that they'll accept this offering from me. So he wants to do that first because he has, this is an amazing Enterprise that Paul has put together in fact it takes up two chapters in 2 Corinthians 2nd Corinthians 8 and 9 all about this collection A collection that Paul is taking he's sending men to do it like Titus and other messengers And they're they're making this vast collection to relieve the persecuted and therefore the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem what a sign what an actual presentation and manifestation of unity in the church and the Jewish Christians and the Greek Christians and that's a big thing in Rome that's where there's a lot of divisiveness and factiousness so only here Paul explains why he hasn't gotten there he's got a lot of good reasons and so first he intends to go to Jerusalem with a monetary gift from the Gentile churches in Greece so this, too, is part of Paul's ambassadorial bid for unity among the Gentile churches and the Jewish church in Jerusalem. Again, this refers to the Jews and the Greeks in Romans 1.16. And it also addresses the problem of the weak and the strong, the so-called weak, the weaklings, which are called the weaklings by the strong who call themselves the strong, but they fail to recognize the verse that we're dealing with on Sunday morning, let not the strong boast in his wisdom, boast in his strength. All of this comes to a head in Romans. So this is too part of Paul's apostolic ambassadorial bid for unity among Gentiles and Jewish churches. Romans 15 but now I am going to Jerusalem. So it it doesn't sound confusing to me at all. Paul's just telling him what his plans are. I've wanted to come to you. I couldn't because my policy is to preach the gospel where it's never been proclaimed before. So I've had many opportunities to do that, and that's kept me from coming to you. That makes sense. And I do plan to come by you to Spain so that I can mutually edify you and you, me, when on on the way there, and hopefully you'll help send me on my way. What's confusing about that? Then he says, but first I've got to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to bring a collection and present it to the Jewish Christians in Judea that have been persecuted as a sign of solidarity of the Greek churches and the Jewish churches, as a wonderful symbol... And a real generosity that shows unity. So then I'll come. So I don't get it. Commentator. Wise man. What are you saying? Paul's confused. He's not confused at all. He's got this lined up pretty good. So. I'm now I'm going to Jerusalem. To minister to the saints. For the churches in Macedonia. And Achaia. That's the northern Greece. Achaia is southern Greece. We're pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. I love what he does here in verse 27. Yes, they were pleased to do it, he says. Indeed, they were pleased to do it. But look what he says next. In fact, they owe them. They owe them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the spiritual benefits of the Jews... Remember, the root bears the Gentiles. The Gentiles don't bear the root, the Jews. If the Gentiles have shared in the spiritual benefits of the Jews, then they, the Gentiles, are obligated to minister to the Jews materially. That doesn't mean all the time, but in this case, it makes sense. The root bears you. Christ has come from the Jews. The patriarchs belong to the Jews. The adoption belongs to the Jews. The covenants belong to the Jews. And now you're the beneficiaries of the Jewish heritage in Christ. So he says, yeah, these churches, they they put together quite a collection, a free will offering. But and they were pleased to do it. They were genuinely motivated they weren 't doing it under obligation, but they did it and but on the bottom line is they owe the Jews this. they owe their fellow brothers in Christ this. So note here that the Greek churches owe the Jewish saints goes with the rebuke of Gentile Christian arrogance that Paul did in Romans eleven the Gentile Christian arrogance that he and the elitism that he reproved in Romans eleven which was an elitism which emboldened the bias of the group in Rome who despised the Jewish believers there and former Jewish proselytes who were keeping to some of the regulations of Torah really Paul considered it harmless that they still had some kosher regulations for the things they ate some didn't drink wine some did some didn't eat meat and that some were aren't Omnivores, some were carnivores, some were lettuce eaters, as they called each other, and they were with regard to these divisions. And so the so-called strong, and they named themselves the strong, the Gentiles who didn't require all that stuff, despised and and really ridiculed and bullied Jewish Christians, calling them weaklings. And they were called weaklings by the mostly Gentile saints in Rome who boasted in their strength. Let not the strong person boast in his or her strength. This is how Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 fans out throughout Romans as we're teaching on Sunday mornings. So this boast, this group bias, was contrary to the eternal God's authoritative word through Jeremiah 9.23 and 24, which is a word that I think vibrates powerfully throughout all of Romans, the epistle. The strong person must not boast in his or her strength. Now, this ministry to the Jewish saints in Jerusalem, the poor there, by Greek churches, is a subject which takes up full Two chapters, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. I recommend you might want to read it sometime. It'll take you 15, 20 minutes. The heart of that, two chapters, is Christ and him crucified. Because Paul, even in that, determines to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. For in the midst of those two chapters, at the heart of which there is, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who though he was rich, became poor for our sakes, that we might be made rich by means of his poverty. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Indeed, in 2 Corinthians thirteen four, he was crucified in weakness. What a message for the strong. He was crucified in weakness. And yet, now he lives by the power of God. We could almost say that the more we understand our own weakness the more we live by the power of God the more that we are weakened in the way as Psalm 103 says the more we understand the strength of God to be strengthened then by the word is to be weakened in our own strength and then strengthened by the power of grace which is the power of resurrection it don't come easy as Ringo Starr's song says, you know it don't come easy. So if you compare Second Corinthians thirteen four with Romans 1 4, then you have quite a comparison, which I won't go into now. Let's continue. This is going to take a big chunk of Romans fifteen, incidentally, Romans fifteen twenty eight. Consequently, Paul says, I love the continuity of this whole thing. Only when I have finished this task which is what? Carrying that collection to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Only when I have finished this task and safely delivered this carpón, this fruit, this fruit, same word as used in Romans one that I may have some fruit among you, some support. From you to go to Spain with, that I may hear he says that fruit is the financial gift for the Jewish Christians. So when I have finished this task and safely delivered this fruit, so when I say that fruit that Paul accepts, hopes to receive from the Roman saints is support, material support for his mission it's proven right here where the fruit that he's talking about is a material support for the poor in Jerusalem. There's a lot to this. So he says, now you see the reasoning a little sharper, I hope. Let's drop another lens here. Consequently, only when I have finished this task and safely delivered this fruit, that is, these funds, will I leave for Spain. In other words, once I've made that delivery to Jerusalem, I'll leave from Jerusalem. You can check a map if you want, what he has to do. It's quite extensive. You go, I'm going to leave Jerusalem then and head for Spain, but I'm coming through you. I'm coming through Rome. Quite a travelogue there. So, only then will I leave for Spain by way of you. But, And then I would expand this translation a little bit for understanding. He said, but even though I have to accomplish this task first. That's the idea that he's talking about here. But even though I have to accomplish this task first. I know that when I do come to you, it will be with the fullness, that's pleroma, of the blessedness of Christ. Some translations say, with the fullness of the blessedness of the gospel of Christ. What Paul is saying is, when I do this in the order that it's done, I'm going to accumulate a lot of blessing of Christ when I come to you. If I just come to you now, then there won't be that accumulated blessedness of having created such unity in Jerusalem first. So he's saying, I know you'll understand this. When I come, I want to come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. You see, a lot of us don't realize that in our lives, when we are delayed for doing something, it's because God wants us to do that thing, but to do it with the fullness of Christ's blessing, not with a half-hearted, I almost said something else, a half-hearted blessing, not with a... In other words, there is a great value in patience. So that's why I translated this with an expanded translation in verse 29. But even, though, but even though I have to accomplish this task first, I know that when I come to you, it will be with the fullness of the blessing of Christ or the Messiah. Obviously, the Messiah is going to be very pleased that we Gentile Christians blessed the Jewish people who are Christians And then I'll come to you. Imagine the blessedness that will be with me when I come to you then. So don't you think it's wise for me to do this thing first? And they would say, oh, I guess so. So by this he means that all the more blessedness or the fullness, the pleroma of the blessedness of the Messiah. And I don't know about you, but that's what I want for my life. I want to have things, for one thing, if you don't, You don't have to hear God's voice to do stuff Paul had a policy And he said it's reasonable in the policy Well, here's an open door So I'm going to go there He didn't have to ask God He just went there And that's why many times When we don't have a plan in front of us We forge ahead We make a plan We go ahead And if God wants to stop us He'll stop us I'm not talking about sinful plans I'm talking about life plans And so Paul says, look, I got open doors, I'm going to take them. I'm collecting a big collection for Jerusalem, so I want to bring the collection. I'm going to do that. And if I do that and then come to you, I think then there'll be the maximum blessing of Christ. So many of us settle for not the maximum blessing of Christ. And I think that we can order our lives under the guidance of the Holy Spirit so that when we get to places and when we get to people and when we even meet here, we come in the fullness of the blessedness of Christ. If only people waited. I could tell you, after 40 years of ministry, people that did not wait for the blessedness of marriage And jumped on it too quick many of them are no longer married or many of them are married and wish to God they weren't because they did not wait to reach that status in the fullness of the blessedness of Christ getting some things done first like growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ like doing that together And apply that to hundreds of others things that we do in life I'd like to arrive at my goals in life in the fullness of the blessedness of Christ I'd like to arrive at the judgment seat of Christ in the fullness of the blessedness of Christ and to hear my master say well done good and faithful slave with a smile because of course we know what that means by this then, Paul means, and we're interpreting here, that all the more blessedness will accompany Paul when he gets to Rome precisely because he would have fulfilled this profoundly unifying task first. So Romans 15.30, Now I urge you, siblings, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. That goes back to Romans 5.5 5, as we've taught before. That you fight together with me. That's the word. Agonizo. It's not agonize. It's fight. It's fight together with me in my arena. It's a gladiatorial term. That you fight together with me in my arena. And here's your weapons that you use. By your prayers. To God. On my behalf. How many times. Tragically have we had to hear the words. Our prayers go out to you. They don't go out to you. Our prayers go to God for you. I don't want somebody saying my prayers go out to you. What the hell for? What can I do for you? How about your prayers have gone to God on behalf of me? That I like. That's what he says here. going back down to the lower gears now so that I don't get into myself so here we have it I urge you siblings by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the spirit that you fight together with me in my arena by your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be rescued now he's going to Jerusalem It's a dangerous mission. There's a big connection here of 1 Corinthians 15, 31, and 32 with Romans 15, 31, and 32. That I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea. If you read Acts 21, you know what he's talking about. They were going to tear him limb from limb. All Jerusalem came out to tear him to shreds. And if it weren't for the Roman legion coming under Claudius Lysias, double-time marching jogging down the street with their testudo, he would have been torn to, to shreds quite literally and stoned to death. So he says, I want you to pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and find rest with you. The God of peace be with you all. The word here is pantone. People are upset because Paul has so many of these. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you in 1620. Then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all in 1624. And then here he says at the end of 15, the peace, the God of peace be with you all. And then in 1620, he says, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. I don't think there's a problem with that. I don't get that either. Why is there a problem with Paul repeating and with addition? For example, in Romans 1620, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. But in 1624, after all those wonderful greetings, he said, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. All. Again, a key word 75 times in Romans. The God of peace be with you all. His intention, his will, is that there be unity and peace in the church in Rome with all of them, all those groups, the strong that despise the weak, the weak that judge the strong, the doubters, the weak that don't judge the strong and the strong that don't judge the weak, all together as one. The God of peace be with you all. Cantone again. And please note sixteen twenty four, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with them all. And he always says grace and peace be with you. Here he splits it up. Romans fifteen twenty thirty three, the God of peace be with you all, and sixteen twenty four the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen, or let it be so. So, in closing, this strong request for prayer on behalf of Paul by himself reaches back and finds a partner in his own fervent prayers for them in Romans 1.10. I make mention of you always in my prayers. At the end, he says, I'm asking for you to fight together in my arena by your prayers to God for me. Your sword is... Your shield and your weaponry in my battle is your prayers for me, he says. So as I suggested before, everything is a bid for peace in Romans, the epistle. Paul's an ambassador of peace, an ambassador of reconciliation. Not only of reconciliation out to the world, but a minister of peace and reconciliation to the divided church. He's a minister of reconciliation. All of Romans is therefore a bid for peace among God's people. The God of peace that is with them in 1533 is the same God of peace who will stomp Satan, the sower of strife among them, into pieces under their feet. That's all. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to look into your word. And thank you that this pincer movement seems to be working even in Romans 15 and later as we, and also in Romans 1. Thank you that this, you have granted this strategy, evidently. We will follow it as long as it works, even as Paul followed his policy until you stepped in. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity that we've been given tonight